Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 23, verses 6 through 25. So turn there in your Bibles if you have them. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Luke chapter 23 on page 830. So turn there. If you're using a pew Bible, uh, use your, your own Bible. You can look on the, the screen and we'll have the verses that we're working from, from there. So you can follow along as well. During the season of Lent, the weeks leading up to Easter, we are uh, working through the 23rd chapter of Luke, which is the, the arrest and trial and um, you know, crucifixion of, of Jesus. So that's going to be kind of the, what we spend time contemplating for the next uh, few weeks. We might take a week off to, to consider uh, a psalm. Um, but yeah, Luke 23 for the majority of the time between now and Easter. Um, last week we were Luke 23 verses 1 through, I don't know, 5, 6, 7. Um, and so we saw Jesus uh, brought before Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders wanted to uh, sentence Jesus to death. They didn't have the authority to do so, so they uh, brought him before Pilate to try to get Pilate to condemn Jesus to, to death by execution. They accused him of misleading the nation of Israel, trying to seduce them away from loyalty to Rome. They accused him of uh, telling people not to pay their taxes, and they accused him of claiming that he was the true king and that Caesar is not the true king. Pilate was reluctant to act. Pilate is uh, reluctant to, to act, right? He, um, you know, he either didn't think that Jesus was guilty, or he uh, thought that the religious leaders were, were biased and were you know, kind of not acting in good faith, or some combination of those two things. But along the way, during their dialogue between Pilate and the religious leaders, uh, they, the word uh, Galilee is mentioned, and that kind of brings us to verse 6, where Pilate starts to question, you know, hey, uh, is, is Jesus from Galilee? And he kind of starts to hatch the scheme of where he can kind of pass the buck, send Jesus to Herod, because Herod is the ruler of that region, get some political uh, cover, you know, make it to where the religious leaders can't be mad at him for not condemning Jesus to die, but making it to where anyone who is sympathetic to Jesus can also not be mad at him, um, because, you know, kind of trying to find this, this middle this middle ground. And so we'll read verses 6 through 25 today and just kind of look at Jesus before Herod and then Jesus being sent back to Pilate and then Jesus ultimately being sentenced to, to crucifixion uh, by, by Pilate and those that are, that are there. So pick up in verse 6. It says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. And so he questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this day, they had been at enmity with each other. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish him and release him. 
But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them a second time, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! And a third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt in him deserving death. I will therefore punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask your blessing on our time and your word this morning. Lord, this is... uh, not an academic pursuit, right? We don't read uh, your word because we are intellectually curious. Rather, Lord, we are creatures eager to hear from our Creator. So we open your word this morning. We pray that your Spirit would work through it in our hearts and in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 6. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether he was a Galilean. When he learned that he was in Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. Right? Jesus has stood on trial now in front of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, kind of a religious trial. He stood trial in front of Pilate, the governor of Judea in southern uh, Israel. Now he's going to his third trial uh, in front of Herod, the governor of Galilee, northern Israel. We established last week that Pilate was a, a bad guy. He was, uh, had a bad reputation. He was brutal. He was uh, oppressive. He was violent. Herod is no different. Uh, this is Herod Antipas that's in view here. Uh, he's the son of Herod the Great, who we, we see in uh, the, the birth narratives in the beginning of Matthew. Um, and so Herod, Herod Antipas, this guy's father was, you know, he's the one who uh, ordered the mass killing, the genocide of all male children two years old and younger in and around the region where Jesus was, was born. That was, that was this Herod's father figure, male role. That's, that's like the, the house that he grew up in and, you know, kind of who he learned from. And so he grew up and he, uh, you know, didn't, he, he's, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So Herod Antipas grows up and he's uh, just as sinful and, and decadent as his father. Uh, he's, uh, by this point, he's already killed John the Baptist, beheaded him. At the, so uh, Herod Antipas, uh, he had eyes for his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, who also happened to be his niece. So it's kind of a weird, incestuous uh, situation going on. But he, he uh, wanted to marry his niece slash brother-in-law, so he does. He takes, takes the wife from his brother, marries her for himself. John the Baptist hears about it, calls him out for it, confronts him publicly uh, for it. And, and Herod Antipas is upset by that, so he puts John the Baptist in jail. Sometime later, uh, his now wife, uh, her daughter, 
Um, so this would be his niece's daughter slash his stepdaughter, uh, you know, uh, dances for him at a, at a birthday party. And, and in return, she asks for him to kill John the Baptist, which he does. So, so Herod Antipas is a gross guy. He's, you know, nothing is out of bounds for him. Uh, no regard for, um, you know, other people. He's vile, disgusting, bad dude. But he's heard all about Jesus, and he is uh, excited to see Jesus. He was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod is excited. This is good, right? Pilate has done him a favor. He has sent uh, this man Jesus to him. He's heard all about Jesus. He's heard about his teaching. He teaches with power and authority and insight. He's heard about his miracles, right? He casts out demons, feeds entire crowds of people with small amounts of, of food. And Herod is thinking, this is fun. This is, uh, right, this, right, this, it's like having my own private show with a magician that I can kind of get him to do all kinds of tricks and signs and, and wonders. So that's Herod's plan for Jesus, right? I want him to entertain me. I want him to, to you know, impress me. I want him to do uh, cool things and fun things, right? I want him to, um, you know, he's not, he's not at all concerned for the reality that he is the judge, and this man Jesus is facing the death penalty, and he's being brought before him so that Herod can hear his trial and make a ruling on it. He's not at all concerned about the fact that if he does not rule justly, it's possible that an innocent man might be put to death. He's not concerned with listening or being fair or applying the law. He's concerned with, you know, amuse me, entertain me. Do a, do a magic trick for me, right? If you're, if you're framed for murder and you're brought into the courtroom and the judge is texting his friends or playing, you know, angry birds or, or watching YouTube videos, you'd be, you know, you're thinking this is, this is very serious for me. This is potentially devastating, life-altering. It doesn't seem like you're taking it uh, very, very seriously. Herod has no interest in justice. He, his only interest is in his own entertainment. Verse 9, and he questions him at some length. So Herod is now asking, he's kind of peppering Jesus with, with questions. Doesn't say what, but uh, given the, the circumstances around the, the narrative of the story, he's probably asking him questions like, can you do something impressive for me? Can you show me, right, what have you got for me? What are you going to do for me, Right? I've heard you can do miracles. Can you show me uh, a, a miracle? Right? I've heard that. Right? Why don't Why don't you make water? Make make wine out of out of water. Why don't you make something disappear? Why don't you uh, impress me with some sort of cool trick? He questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. I'm not even going to. Right? I'm not even going to dignify that with a response, Herod. I'm not, I'm not uh, intimidated by you. I don't feel the need, the compulsion to drop what I'm doing and try to impress you or entertain. You want a show? You want a, a sign? I'm not going to say a word because that's not... right. My, my mission was not to come here and entertain you. My mission was not to come here and uh, meet the, your felt needs and, and you know, accommodate your, your preferences. I'm not here for your entertainment or your amusement. 
which if I'm honest is a little convicting, right? It's convicting to consider how often I think about God or spiritual things or the, or the church and, and consider them to be something that are at my disposal for my amusement, for my entertainment. We, we live in a world that is obsessed with entertainment. Looked up some stats this, this week. Uh, the average, average person watches over three hours of television a day. The average person uses their phone for over six hours a day. They all have a bajillion subscriptions to a bajillion different services that pipe all different kinds of TV shows and songs and everything else right into One comedian said, um, it's like we went to the phone company and we're like, hey, I... I want you to put all of my music that I have, the entire you know, rack of CDs that I have, records, t- put all of that into my phone so I can listen to all of it whenever I want. And the phone company was like, man, that's a pretty tall order. It's a small phone. It's a lot of music. We'll get to work on it. We'll see what we can do. And then we came back and we're like, wait, did I say all my music? I meant all the music. All of the, every song that's ever been written and recorded in the entire world, I want instant access to that on my phone all of the time. Throw in all the movies that have ever been made, all the books that have ever been written. I want everything. We're obsessed with entertainment. We are entertaining ourselves to death. And if we're not careful, we'll bring that same uh, obsession with entertainment, that same mindset into uh, our relationship with God and into our relationship with the church. This Herod-like posture that says, what's in it for... What's in it for me? Entertain me. Amuse me. Right? I'll, I'll believe in God. I'll go to church as long as, you know, as long as it's cool and, and slick and polished. And, and, you know, the music better sound like you too. The, you know, the preaching better be like a TED Talk that's like, you know, a little bit, you know, uplifting. I want this kind of coffee. I want this kind of chair. I don't, you know, I want, I want to be entertained. I want church to be like Netflix where it has an algorithm that, that determines what I like and then gives me what I want before I even know that I want it. That's the spirit of, of Herod. And that's the posture that Jesus won't even dignify with a response of, of any kind. And a lot of us treat God that way. A lot of us treat church that way. What's in it for... My, my wife and I are looking into a... I've never been a gym membership guy. I like to run, do push-ups, do, do sit-ups. Uh, but I don't like to go to a gym. Do, my biggest issue with gyms is just the whole process. And like the, have you, if you ever tried to get out to cancel a gym membership, I think it's impossible. I've, I've been a member of a couple of them, and it is the most, you know, you have to get a notarized letter. You basically have to retain an attorney to, to can't get your gym membership canceled. It's obnoxious, and so I've, I've just always preferred to, you know, yeah, do, kind of find, find my own ways to exercise, uh, not at a gym. But, na- but so the, the gym near our house, we caught wind that they have free childcare, and we have two kids. <laughs> 35 years I've lived, I've never seen the value. It's, gyms in my brain have always been a scam, a con, right? That's a sucker deal. 
And now I hear they have free childcare. I'm like, you know, I think I might see the value in having a gym membership. Now that you mention it, as long as there's childcare, as long as it's fun and light and enjoyable and there's no real sacrifice involved, maybe gyms aren't as dumb as I always thought they were. That's how a lot of us treat God. That's how a lot of us treat the church. I want a better marriage. I want a better life. I want to, to advance in my career. I want to feel better about myself. I want people to think of more highly of me than they do. I want to be entertained. I want someone to watch my, my kids on Sunday mornings. If you, can, if you can accommodate all of my demands, as long as nothing is asked of me, then maybe I can see value. Maybe I'll give Christianity a shot. Maybe I'll be a part of a, of a church. Jesus sees that kind of attitude inherit, and he wants nothing to, to do with it. Because the reality is, Jesus doesn't answer to Herod. Right? Herod, answer, Herod thinks that Jesus answers to him. Right? Herod thinks, I'm the king, you're the person on trial, you've been brought to me, I'm the ruler, I'm in charge, it's your job to you know, meet my needs, do what I want from you, I'm holding all of the, the leverage, and so you have to cater to me, do what I want so that I can give you this thing that you, I, I hold your fate in my hands. That's, that's Herod's understanding, but that's not what's happening. The reality is, Jesus is the king. Jesus created Herod. Jesus is going to be the arbiter of Herod's eternal fate. It's not Herod's job to acknowledge Jesus or come to Jesus. Or it's, not Herod, it's not Jesus' job to acknowledge Herod or come to Herod on Herod's terms. It's Herod's job to acknowledge Jesus and come to Jesus on his terms. We have a similar posture, right? I'll believe, I, I, might, I might do God the favor of having me believe in him if I can be convinced with enough evidence to my satisfaction, right? If, if someone can prove to me, to my satisfaction, that the Bible is not sexist or regressive or closed-minded, right? If God comes to me on my terms, then I might do him the favor of believing in him. When in reality, Jesus is not trying to prove to anyone that he exists. Jesus knows that he exists, and he knows he's the king of the universe, and he knows he's going to gather his people to himself for all of eternity, and he knows he's going to crush everyone who rejects him and rebels against him. He knows that's the case. He's not trying to convince anyone. He's not trying to conform to our 21st century sensibilities and sensitivities. Jesus is not begging us to believe in it. Jesus is the king. He is who he is. He's the creator and the sovereign Lord. It's our job to come to him on his terms, not expect or demand that he would come to us on our terms. And Jesus is the one who says what the church is and why it exists and he doesn't say that it exists to entertain people like Herod might want it to. Jesus says that a church is uh, a gathering of, of believers who, who worship God together, proclaim the gospel together, affirm one another as believers through the sacraments together, and display the character and the glory of God to the onlooking world together. That's what the church is and why it exists according to Jesus 
It has nothing to do with entertaining us, nothing to do with catering to our desires or our preferences. And if we think that it is, explicitly or implicitly or, or functionally, then that's something that we need to repent of and turn, turn away from. That's the spirit of, of Herod. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes, they stood by vehemently accusing him. Right? So they're still here. They've been here the whole time. Ever since uh, Judas led them to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were there. They were there at the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. They're there before Pilate. Now they're here. In front. They're, they're following Jesus from place to place, accusing him with venom and animosity. Verse 11, and, and Herod and his soldiers treated Jesus with contempt and they mocked him. Because that's what you do. That's what you do when you don't get your way. Right? If you, if you have something that you want, something that you desire, something that, that you are obsessed with and you don't get it, or it's, it's taken from you, the response of the human heart is contempt, derision, scorn, Mockery. Jesus was ex- Herod was excited when he heard that Jesus was being brought to him because he wanted to see a sign, wanted to see a miracle. When he doesn't get what he wants, he uh, lashes out, mistreats, and abuses Jesus. That's what. That's how the human heart works when it's confronted with with idols. Right? Idols make all of these promises on the front end, and then disappoint and leave us confused and bitter and angry after the fact. New thing you're about to get, new gadget, bigger house, better, you know, higher salary, freedom to retire, right? Whatever the thing, right? Whatever the thing is on the horizon, we convince ourselves as soon as I get it, I'll be happy. My life will be better. I'll never need another thing again after that. I'll be satisfied once and for all. Then we get it after a month or two, or a week or two, or a few minutes, the novelty wears off, right? You know, you're, you're, the thing that was so new and cool, now I hate this thing, I can't stand this job, this house is too drafty, whatever it is, right? You loved it when you got it, now you hate it. It promises you the world, convinces you it'll make you happy, then it lets you down and leaves you feeling empty and guilty and resentful and angry until something else catches your eye makes the same promises, and then we believe that. We chase after that until we get it and are let down. It's just this vicious cycle, this vicious treadmill. Right? If you give your heart to anything other than Jesus, that's the treadmill that you're, that you're running on. It's promises, disappointments, anger, right? discontentment, wash, rinse, and repeat. Worship Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. It's the only thing that will not leave you empty and angry. So Herod didn't, didn't have any concern for Jesus. He had concern for his own entertainment, his own amusement. Doesn't get it. He's let down and he's upset. So then he arrays Jesus in splendid clothing and sends him back to Pilate. This is a joke. He's making a joke. He's making sport of Jesus, right? You say that you're a king. You're obviously not. A, I'm, there's only one king in this room and it's me. So, so I'm going to make fun of you publicly. I'm going to laugh at you. I'm going to have everyone that's here laugh at you. We're going to send you back to Pilate. 
And Herod and Pilate became friends that day. For before this day, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate and Herod, up until this point, were, uh, they were rivals. They were competitors. There's a finite amount of land to rule over. There's a finite amount of resources. There's a finite amount of favor from Caesar. There's a finite amount of upward mobility in our respective careers. And so every inch that he gets is something that I don't. They're fighting with each other. Now they are brought together. Right now they're thinking, oh, you think that Jesus is a joke and that we should make sport of him publicly? So do I. Right? You don't see yourself as having any responsibility to administer justice rightly? Great. Neither do I. Right? You think it's funny to mistreat and abuse the people that we are called to protect and get justice for? So do I. Now they're, now they're friends. They were rivals and now they are friends. And now Jesus is back in front of Pilate, the same guy that he initially Pilate sent him away because Pilate, it, it, Pilate recognized that it was not politically expedient for him to have to make a ruling on Jesus. Right? Pilate is trying to you know, escape and, and evade and not have to be on the record. And now he is backed into a corner. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. But after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. So Pilate's starting to sweat, right? He thought that he had an out. He thought that he had, you know, dodged the bullet here. He thought that he didn't have to, you know, say anything that was going to come back and and bite him. He thought he had found a middle way, a third way, where all of his constituents would be happy at him. And now he realizes that he's going to be, you know, he's going to have to go on the record. So he calls in the religious leaders and he says, guys, let's, let's talk about this here. Let's smooth it over. Let's figure something out. If I'm being perfectly honest, I know you don't want to hear this, but if I'm being perfectly honest, I don't think that Jesus did anything wrong. And again, it's not just me. It's, it's also Herod. We sent Jesus to, to Herod. Herod didn't, didn't think that he did anything wrong. Herod sent him back to us. So you guys are, are 0 for 2 in trying to get Jesus executed. Why don't we stop and take stock and, and rethink whether Jesus really does deserve to die? And he proposes his own solution, right? Nothing deserving death has been done, so how about I just punish him and release him? Which... You know, he's hoping this might be a way to placate everyone. People who don't want Jesus to be put to death will be happy that he's not killed. People that uh, want Jesus killed will at least be, ha- be happy that he's being punished. So it's a compromise in the sense that it's, you know, trying to find the middle ground between the two. But it's also a comp- Pilate is compromising his own responsibilities. Because, you know, he, he literally says in verse, tw- in verse 14... I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Which would mean that he's not deserving of any punishment at all because he didn't do any of, like, none of your accusations stuck. And yet, verse 16, I will therefore, if he didn't do anything, then why would he be punished? And so Pilate is already starting to, 
He's already starting to compromise, and he's already starting to, uh, you know, to, to, he's already starting to abdicate his responsibility to justice and start proposing uh, injustice and proposing, um, yeah, wicked, wicked alternatives. So he's not guilty, but I'm going to punish him anyway so that some people will like him. Uh, so, yeah, Pilate's thinking he's not guilty. I'm going to punish him so that people might like me. And of course, he's right. In verse 17, we see that if he, uh, that, that this, this solution that he's throwing out, I'm sorry, not verse 17, verse 18, um, is, is not going to be well received. They cried out all together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. So this is how committed the religious leaders are to eliminating Jesus, right? This shows the the lengths that they are willing to go to get Jesus out of the picture, to make an example of him, to make sure that no one else will ever try to usurp their authority ever again, right? They, you know, Pilate doesn't, you know, Pilate doesn't suggest Barabbas to them. They suggest Barabbas to Pilate. They say, away with him, release to us Barabbas, right? This man was, this man was in prison, arrested, tried, convicted for insurrection and for murder. Killing someone in an attempt to incite panic and overthrow the government. We have a name for that today. It's called terrorism. Barabbas is a terrorist. And they're saying, we would rather have this guilty murder, this terrorist who's guilty of murder, back out on the streets rather than have Jesus. And they know that Barabbas, right, you put him back on the streets, there's a good chance he's going to commit the same, the same crimes again. There's a good chance that releasing Barabbas back out on the street means there's going to be another riot, there's going to be another murder, right? Innocent Israelites are probably going to die because of this decision. They don't care. Because their, their, their like obsession is eliminating Jesus, getting rid of, of Jesus, putting things back the way they were before Jesus started to upset the apple cart. Verse 20, Pilate addresses them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate is saying, even Pilate is scandalized by, by the, the, the bloodlust of the, of the religious leaders, right? Pilate is a Gentile, Roman, pagan governor, member of the aristocracy, the ruling class. This guy, theoretically, Pilate should be the least moral character in the story. The religious leaders, theoretically, should be the most moral. Pilate should be the least. And even Pilate is, uh, is scandalized by the behavior of the religious leaders. You'd rather have Barabbas? You'd rather have, right, even I can see that that is not only unjust, but it's just foolish. You've sunk to a new low when the, the Roman aristocrat ruler thinks that what you're doing is, is wrong. But they're undeterred, verse, 24, or verse 22. A third time they said to him, 
or for the time, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I've found no guilt deserving death. Let me just punish him and release him. Guys, don't do this. Let's find an alternative. Let's find something that you can live with, something that's not patently wrong and unjust and immoral. Let's think together. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. They can't be swayed. They can't be satisfied. They can't be convinced. They're so committed. They're they're utterly convinced that Jesus represents a threat to their authority, their position. They are utterly committed to having him killed, no matter what it takes, no matter what the, the cost. And then Luke says, and their voices prevailed. Pilate knows what's right. He knows what God... Right? Pilate's not a Christian. Pilate's not you know, a, a, a religious person. And yet he still knows what's right. He knows what he's called to do. Romans 2 says that the law of God is written on the hearts of people. Even non-believers have a conscience that bears witness to the law of God. And so Pilate knows what God wants him to do. And he knows what the world is clamoring for him to do and insisting that he do and urging him to do. And Pilate sees, he recognizes that he is at a fork in the road. Do I do what is right? Or do I do what, what is convenient? Do I do what pleases God? Or do I do what pleases the, the world? Do I do the thing that is just but costly? Or do I do the thing that is wicked but easy? Those are the two options. Those are the two voices that Pilate is hearing in his ears. And the voices of the people prevail. We are all faced with choices from time to time. Like Pilate, between what's right and what's easy. Between what pleases God and what pleases the world. What's just but costly. But what is, rather than what is wicked and, and easy. The choice between living for the approval of Christ and living for the approval of the world. The choice between... Engaging in gossip and slander, joining with people who are doing it, or refusing, or or not being a part of it. The choice between being generous like God has called us to be, and being selfish like the world seems to take it for granted that we will be. The choice between repenting and forgiving and reconciling in the aftermath of conflict, as opposed to the choice of being bitter and vengeful and hostile like the world expects me to be. One of those voices is inevitably going to prevail in our lives, in our hearts, God or self, God or the world. And the only way that we'll listen to God, the only cure for listening to the world instead of God is to be more concerned about what God thinks of us than we are about what the world thinks of us. To be more desirous of what God can give us than we are desirous of what the world 
can give us. If we as Christians are going to follow Christ and honor Him as Lord in all of our lives, we have to be ready to lose everything. Jobs, positions, popularity, money, you name it, right? The, the, the Christian life is this long journey of knowing God, listening to God, experiencing God with the people of God over decades, so much so that the voice of God starts to prevail over the voice of the world. Right? What God is calling us to do starts to prevail over what the world is clamoring for us to do. So we need to stop and take stock and just ask which voice is prevailing in our hearts. Which voice is going to prevail in our hearts? What can we be doing now as the people of God to ensure that the voice of God prevails in our hearts instead of the voice of the world? Verse 24, Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. And he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Known murderer, terrorist, arrested, convicted, in prison, is let go. Known innocent man who's brought up on false charges who's the victim of prosecutorial misconduct, is condemned to die. That's what happens here in Luke 23. It's not, it's not what Pilate wanted to happen. Pilate's been backpedaling the whole time. He's been trying to avoid it the whole time. Ever since the moment where they first bring Herod to him, He's been objecting. When they first brought Jesus to him, he sends him to Herod. He comes back. He objects once, twice, three times. And now Pilate's final tactic, right? If I, I'm, I'm trying my best to, to, not, to not be a... Like, I don't want to be a part of this. I don't, this isn't my decision. It's not my choice. I don't want this to happen this way. Matthew 27 uh, gives us some more insight into Pilate's Final words when the decision is made. I think we have the verse up there. It says, Pilate took water and he washed his hands symbolically before the crowd, saying, I I wash my hands of this, right? I am innocent of this man's blood. Pilate is saying, no matter what happens, I want to make sure that history looks back on me and sees me as the guy who did not want to sentence Jesus to die. I'm innocent. If if, if anyone in this story is going to be innocent of his blood, it's me. You see to it yourselves. If Jesus is crucified, it's going to be on you, not on me. For centuries, Christians have recited the Apostles' Creed that says that Jesus suffered not under, the, not under the hands of a violent mob or not under the hands of the religious leaders who were falsely... Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It's ironic that like Pilate did every, Pilate did every single thing that he possibly could do, everything at his disposal to not be associated with the death of Jesus save for the one thing he needed to do, which was stand up for Jesus and advocate for him. 
Pilate does everything else that he can to distance himself from it, to recuse himself from it. It's Herod's decision, not mine. It's your decision, not mine. I don't want it to be me. I am innocent of this man's blood. And yet, at the end of the day, Pilate chose the way of cowardice. He chose the way of passivity. He chose the way of saying, I'm not going to commit one way or the other, so I'll let you do what you want to do. I'm not going to be a a, a part of it. And what we learn from Pilate's example is that that kind of passivity and cowardice in the face of sin is just as just as wicked as overt malice, right? Pilate's thinking, at least I'm not as bad as the murderous, bloodthirsty crowd. I don't necessarily have to stop them. I don't necessarily have to stand up for Jesus as long as I'm just not as bad as them. I mean, if I can choose this middle way, recuse myself, be passive, let them do what they're going to do, as long as I'm not doing it with them, then I'm, I'm fine. And what we learn from Pilate is that Doing nothing out of fear and self-preservation and passivity is just as bad as, as the religious leaders and as the crowd themselves. What God was calling Pilate to do in that moment was, was not just to merely recuse himself, not merely don't be a part of the crowd that's doing this wicked thing, but actually you are in a position, you are the only one who is in the position to stop them, to stand up for what is right. It'll be costly, there will be political fallout, people will probably, uh, you know, your, your, your approval rating will go down, but you're the only one God is not calling us to do nothing in the face of evil. God is calling us to be righteous in the face of evil. God is calling us to advocate for the vulnerable in the face of evil. He's not calling us to take the easy route and simply distance ourselves from sin and wickedness. God is calling us to do the costly, difficult thing of standing up for righteousness and godliness. All through this chapter, the world, in various forms, the world is prioritizing self over God. Religious leaders prioritize their office and their authority and their status ahead of God. Herod prioritizes his entertainment and gratification ahead of God. Pilate puts his popularity and his approval rating ahead of God. And God is calling us to read this and to to recognize that sinful impulse in our hearts and to repent of it. To trust in Christ instead of trusting in ourselves. To put God's will above that of our own. To live to please God instead of living to please the world. And to stand up for God in bold obedience rather than shrinking back in fear and passivity and uh, self-preservation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us uh, to never 
take the gospel for granted. The reality, Lord, that you came to us as a human being, you stood silently and humbly as your enemies accused you and brought you in front of a number of different authorities, ultimately that you laid down your life willingly as a sacrifice to save sinners like us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to never take that for granted. We pray that we could uh, relish it, rejoice in it, celebrate it together as a family. Lord, we thank you, and we worship you, and we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.